Now, having read from the beginning of Paul's letter, we should have been reminded of some of its foundational aspects. Paul was writing to precious saints whom he loved deeply, thanking them for their aid in his ministry, as well as comforting them regarding his condition as a prisoner in Rome. We read of how he viewed his imprisonment as being a tool in God's hands to advance the spread of the gospel and to embolden the brethren. And we read of how the sovereignty of God gave meaning to his suffering. Thus we saw how Paul responded to his imprisonment in light of understanding God's role in his imprisonment. With the truth of God's faithfulness in mind, he was able to stand firm and declare that whether by life or by death, Christ would be glorified in his body. And so it is this subject, the life and death of the believer, that we'll be focusing on this morning. So let me ask you this question. What is your understanding of the Christian life? What should we think about it? Where does it come from? To whom is it owed? What defines it? What is its purpose? And what about Christian death? Now that sounds like a strange thing to say. As if there were such a thing as Christian death as opposed to Islamic death or Hindu death. After all, isn't death the same for everyone? Everyone dies, right? Regardless of their religious belief? Well, of course they do. But understand that I'm talking about how death is viewed from the Christian perspective. How do we view death as Christians? Does death have a purpose? And thinking along those lines, is death a good thing or is death a bad thing? Is it to be dreaded? To be feared? Do we recoil at the thought of death or do we embrace it? Now these are some pretty deep questions that go to the very core of our existence. We're essentially asking questions about the meaning of life and, by implication, the nature of the afterlife. And such profound questions ought only to be paired with profound answers. And thanks be to God that in His Holy Word we have one of the most profound statements ever written to answer these deep questions. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. For the Christian, everything about the human experience from life's first cry to its final breath and all the way into eternity, everything is bound up in this short statement. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. So by God's grace, by the end of the morning, we should have a more full understanding of what that statement really means. Now recall again the context in which the Apostle wrote those words. We should remember that he is writing this letter to the Philippians while being imprisoned in Rome. Now this was a period of his life when Paul was unsure whether or not he would be released or whether or not he'd be executed. And so seeking to encourage the Philippians, he wrote to inform them about his circumstances and encourage them to live lives worthy of Christ. And recall from our recent reading of the text that Paul told the Philippians that his imprisonment had actually served to advance the gospel. So rather than despairing because of his circumstances, he rejoiced because he knew that the sovereignty of God gave meaning to his suffering. All 
stated that he would continue in the faith courageously, not allowing slander or shame to crush his hope in Jesus. <clears throat> With the help of the prayers of the saints and the Spirit of Jesus, he would honor God, whether by life or by death. So it's these two paths, life and death, that Paul ponders while writing this section of his letter to the Philippians. If his life was to be spared by Emperor Nero, then it would mean continued traveling and preaching and hard work in service to Christ. And he'd be able to visit the Philippians again, teaching them and having fellowship with them. But if he was to be killed, it would likely mean dying a gruesome death, but going to be with Jesus forever and gaining his reward. But I want you to note that Paul says he is actually hard-pressed between these two. He actually finds it difficult to settle in his mind which path was more preferable. Should he desire to live in faithful, devoted service to Christ? Or should he desire to be with him in paradise? As we endeavor to understand Paul's dilemma, we'll be examining three points. Number one, the Christian's life is owned and defined by service to Christ. The Christian's life is owned and defined by service to Christ. And point number two, the Christian's highest desire is to be with Christ. Christian's highest desire is to be with Christ. And number three, living to serve Christ is more beneficial to our brethren. Living to serve Christ is more beneficial to our brethren. So on the first point, the Christian's life is owned and defined by service to Christ. Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Paul viewed the very state of being alive as meaning that he must work for the cause of Christ. If A is true, then B is also true. It's only logical. If he is to live, then he must labor for Christ. What this means is that service to Christ is not some secondary byproduct of living. As if life is all about something else, and by the way, if you want, if it's not too inconvenient, maybe you can spend a little time serving Christ. No, serving Christ is the very purpose of living. Service to Christ is the whole point of your existence. To live is Christ. For Paul, that meant laboring after the Great Commission, preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, making disciples, Passing the truth of Christ onto faithful men, feeding God's sheep, looking after their needs, loving them, pouring out his life for them, pursuing the ones who have gone astray to bring them back, fighting the wolves that prey on them, pushing back against the lies of Satan, speaking the truth to maintain pure and right doctrine within the body of Christ. This is what to live as Christ meant for Paul. Serving Christ and laboring for Him. So what does it mean for you? Listen, all Christians must engage in this work. Not just Paul. Not just the leaders of churches. All Christians. And this is true regardless of the context that the Christian has been placed in. 
What this means is that neither your secular work, nor your academic pursuits, nor your hobbies, nor your pleasures are the goal of your life. Rather, these things serve as the backdrop before which you fulfill your Christian duties. Duties like representing Christ, spreading the gospel, resisting Satan, standing up for the truth, loving your brethren, serving your function in the church, which is the body of Christ, glorifying God. These duties are to be seen as paramount as you go about your job, as you go about school, as you enjoy the pleasures of life. You see, the problem is that within modern Christianity, especially in the comfortable West, service to Christ is something that is done as a side activity. It's something that we squeeze into our schedules on the weekends or maybe one evening a week after we've done everything else. For too many Christians, work or academic pursuits or hobbies are the main focus of life. The goal of academia is so that you can get a good job and make lots of money so that you can lead a comfortable life and buy all of the things that bring you pleasure. And we tend to set up our lives around meeting our own goals and priorities, which often have very little to do with the Great Commission. It goes something like this. Earn a degree. Secure a high-paying job. Own two SUVs. Own a five-bedroom, two-bathroom, upstairs, downstairs house. Be able to go on overseas vacations at least once a year. Be able to go on a cruise every year after retirement. Get little Timmy into the best private school with lessons on evenings and on Saturdays. And sign him up for, for football or, or baseball or whatever sport after school so that he can get a scholarship and go to the best university and earn a degree and then we repeat. Now I'm not saying that these things are wrong in and of themselves. All of the things that I just listed can be seen as legitimate blessings from God under the right circumstances. But we need to make sure that we are thinking about them correctly. What level of importance do we place on them as goals in and of themselves? My point is this. Underlying our academic, career, and hobby pursuits should always be this question. How does what I am doing glorify God and benefit the church? Is this the best use of my time, of my energy, of my resources? Here's an example. I remember in one of Pastor John's sermons, he was asking us to consider where our priorities lie. And he gave us this scenario. If you had to make the choice between staying in your current job or moving to another better paying job, what are the chief considerations that you would make? I mean, the pay is way better, sure, but you'd have to work late most days and on the weekends. Does it matter to you what effect that would have on your prayer and on your Bible study? And what about being able to volunteer for evangelism with your church? And what about your family life? Your ability to connect meaningfully with your spouse and your children? Even your relationships within the church, your, your brothers and sisters? Yeah, this new job may make you a lot of money, and it may make you feel important and powerful, but perhaps you would have to pack your bags and move your family to a different part of the country. 
or perhaps even leave the country entirely. And maybe that means you've had to move away from a solid gospel-believing church. Well, is there one nearby in the new area that you're moving to? Have you considered this? Is this important to you? Church membership is an extremely important aspect of the Christian life. Yet, many in our culture, in our Christian culture, don't prioritize it. Would you be willing to miss church most Sundays because the church was too far away from where you had to live and work? Or how about this? Would you be satisfied with only having the option to go to a church with questionable theology and questionable practices because of your career? You see what I'm asking? What do you prioritize? What comes at the top of the list for you? Our minds need to be renewed regarding how we view life because to live is Christ. And this should go without saying, but perhaps a reminder would be helpful. Jesus is Lord. The scriptures say for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. All things are from him. He is the creator God. He owns all of creation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He alone lays claim to the lives of all people, whether they believe in him or not. And all things are through him. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The universe, having been created by God, cannot continue to exist without his sustaining power. And to him are all things. God created and upholds all things for his own pleasure. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Brothers and sisters, understand this. Your pleasures and desires are not the prime good to be sought in this world. Your pleasures and desires, unless they be for the glorification of Jesus Christ, are to be subservient and secondary to his will. Secondary to what he pleases. And secondary to what he desires. And Paul understood this. To live is Christ. Every moment of his life was to be spent in service to Christ. These are the answers to the first questions we asked. The Christian's life comes from Jesus and is owed fully to Jesus. It is defined by obedience to his word and dependence on his grace. And its ultimate purpose is to bring pleasure to him and to glorify him. Believer, you are not your own. For you were bought with a high price, the precious blood of Christ. So understanding this and when pondering the possibility of being released from prison, Paul didn't say, you know what, once I get out of here, I'm retiring. I have done enough and I have had enough. It's time for me to take some me time. No. Instead, what did he say? Should my life continue, it will mean fruitful labor for me. For Paul, the cause of Christ was his priority. And it should be for us as well. And this brings us to the second point. The Christian's highest desire is to be with Christ. We just looked at the fact that we are owned by Christ 
And thus our lives are to be spent in service to him. But Christ lays more, he lays claim rather to more than just what we do in life, our actions. Christ lays claim to our desires as well. I want you to think about this. What is the greatest commandment? Our Lord was asked that question once. And his answer is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. You see, not only are we to love God with all of our soul, which speaks to the will and what we desire to do, and not only are we to love him with all of our mind, which speaks to how we reason and think, but we are also to love him with all of our heart. It's the seat of our affections and emotions. So remember, friends, that our God is a jealous God. There should be nothing competing with him for our adoration and worship. The sad reality, though, is that in our sin, we are still drawn after idols. Things that do compete with God for our adoration and worship. And if you think that there is nothing in your life that you worship besides God, I ask you to think again. To worship something is to give it ultimate worth or importance. And there are many things that we in our sin value and find more worthy of our attention and affections than God. Now we may think to ourselves that that's not true, but the truth, regardless of what we're willing to admit, is borne out in our actions and our thoughts. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. Whether we idolize career or status, or comfort, or a celebrity, or a love interest, whatever it is, I'm going to ask yourself, how often does whatever it is occupy your thoughts and your time? And I want you to compare it to how much time, actual time, you spend in things like prayer, or reading your Bible, or in other spiritual or church-related pursuits. My point, friends, is that Jesus is to be, to each of us, the sweetest, most beautiful, most desirable thing that we can think of. All other things in creation should pale in comparison to him. If someone were to ask you, what do you want? The ultimate answer to that question should be, Jesus Christ. I want to know Jesus. I want to serve Jesus. I want everything in my life to be to him and for him, and in him. And, at the end of my life, I want to be with him. This should be our greatest desire. And you know what? We believers really are blessed. Because it's possible for you to desire someone who does not desire you in return. But that is not our relationship with our Savior. We can rejoice that we serve a God who loves us more than we could love Him. And He meets our weak and inconsistent devotion with great and glorious promises to us. You see, although Jesus is a great King who demands all of our affections, He is nonetheless gracious and merciful. I want you to consider that Jesus is deserving of all of our adoration by the simple fact that He is Creator God. He doesn't have to do anything for us to then be eligible for praise and worship. By the simple fact of who he is, he is deserving of all of our adoration, praise, and worship. 
So he need not offer us any reward for our devotion. It is owed to him as his right because of who he is. Yet, he has given us all the more reason to love and adore and desire him. Because when we did not deserve it, he has made grand promises to us regarding our lives with him in eternity. He's promised us rewards that we mere men cannot even comprehend. The scriptures say that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined the things that God has prepared for those who love him. In Christ, we are promised the blessed hope of freedom from the affliction caused by sin, the ending of the curse, the end of strife and pain, and all of it is to be replaced by everlasting peace. Friends, because of who Jesus is and the promises that he's made to us, we can see why the Christian's highest desire is to go to be with Christ. Now I've said all of that to lay the foundation for what I'm about to say. For the Christian, death is a desirable thing. Now why is that? Because death is the normal means by which we go to be with Jesus. This is why Paul can say to die is gain. Because if our highest desire is to be with Jesus, and death is the normal means by which we go to be with him, then to die must be gain. This is why Paul can say, my desire is to depart. Because death is the means by which he would depart. And so death must be a desirable thing. This is the way that Paul is thinking, and so it's the way that he's encouraging us also to think about death. Now let me clarify something. Normally when we think of death, we think of loss and sadness and pain. And this is especially true when death occurs suddenly and unexpectedly. When death occurs as a result of a terrible illness or a heinous crime or a tragic accident, death is normally a heavy and grim reality that we must all face. And it's not as if the bitterness that we associate with death is inappropriate. Let's not forget what death is. Death is our enemy. It is a stain upon God's beautiful creation that the human race brought upon itself by its rebellion against God. I remember a few years ago I was driving with my wife and daughter. My son hadn't been born yet. And my daughter, who was a toddler at the time, was in her car seat and she was calling out the names of things that she saw as we drove along. And I just remember being so amazed at how intelligent she was. And I know all the parents here can relate to that feeling of just being in amazement at these little lives that we have. I was in awe that this little creature who hadn't even existed for two years could learn and develop so quickly. I was amazed. And immediately as that thought came, it hit me. This sense of Futility. Like, what was the point? My daughter was going to die someday. Everything that she would ever become, everything that she would ever develop into, would come to an end. All of the years and decades that she would spend building up her character, 
building up her, her knowledge, building up her skills, all of that would come to nothing. One day, she would be gone from the earth. And that's when I remembered that death is not normal. It is not supposed to be like this. If you listen to these evolutionists, these naturalists, they talk about death as it's, oh, it's just a natural part of life. It's supposed to be like this. That's not true. That's a lie. Death is not normal. However, death serves as a constant reminder that there are heavy consequences to sin. While we are going about our lives, enjoying the things of this earth and paying little to no attention to the holy God who made it, death serves as a wake-up call. There is a price to be paid for our sin. So we aren't supposed to view death as it's just a part of life, that's just how things are. No, it is a horrible curse. For most people, death means loss. It brings an end to all of their pursuits and their aspirations. Everything that people work these days so hard to build, their careers, their possessions, their knowledge, all of it comes to nothing. And what's worse, for most people, the end of life brings even more pain and more sorrow. Because now they must face the continued consequences of their rebellion against the Holy God in hell forever. For most people, there can be no sweetness in death. When they taste it, it is only bitter. There's only the grim reality of the curse. For most people, death is a horrible thing. It is to be feared. It is to be dreaded. And it is to be recoiled at. But thanks be to God that we are not most people. Amen? Amen. We are believers in Jesus Christ. For the believer, death is a blessing. Praise be to Christ that by His death, we have been saved from the wrath of God. So we can have neither fear nor dread of death because the damning power of sin has been defeated by Christ's sacrifice. Jesus, by his perfect life and sacrificial death, has taken the bitterness out of death for all who believe in his name. Such that, though a man die, yet shall he live. So we can look forward to death because we will finally be free of this corrupt and frail body. And then later we'll receive a perfect, incorruptible, and strong body. Brothers and sisters, death can be a blessing to us because we no longer fear judgment. Because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And far from the loss normally associated with death, we gain so much more in the next life than was ever possible to have in this life. We work so hard to build our homes and build our possessions here on earth. But Jesus himself has prepared a place for us in heaven. Why do we work so hard to develop what we have here? Why do we give it such ultimate importance, such that we would take God and remove him from that spot and put our pursuits there? Why do we do that? Why do we do that here when moths and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal? And when you're gone, even if you think you're leaving it to your children as a legacy for them, 
You don't know who those things will belong to in the end. You don't know. But brothers and sisters, we have treasures in heaven. And we gain perfected righteousness. Imagine being free from sin. Being free from the endless attacks of your flesh against your spirit. No more desiring to be righteous, but being bogged down by lust and and pride and selfishness. The upward struggle for sanctification that each of us believers started the day that we were saved will finally be over as we are perfected once and for all. That means no more sin, no more evil. It's just pure love and devotion to God. This is why Paul can say that to die is gain and it is far better. Now let's do a quick recap. We started this morning by asking questions about the nature and purpose of life and death for the Christian. Then we saw the profound insight into the topic that Paul had. He said to live is Christ and to die is gain. But then he expressed that he was hard pressed between the two, between life and death. He was having a difficult time deciding which path he should choose. On the one hand, continued life would mean that he could continue to glorify God by serving him. But it would also mean uh, continued trouble, persecution, and suffering. And on the other hand, death, though it would likely be a gruesome thing, would free him from this mostly sorrowful life and take him into the arms of his Savior. So we looked at how the Christian life is owned and therefore defined by Christ. We are to be willingly and joyfully at his disposal. So yes, if Paul was to live, it would mean suffering. But that would be his joy. However, make no mistake, dying and going to be with Jesus would be far better. Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Though it would be his joy to live and serve Christ, oh, to be with Christ. So, I think that seems like an easy choice for all of us. All of us here, if we were considering that, I think all of us would choose better to go to be with Christ and be, be with the paradise. I think all of us would, would choose that. So we would choose death. Why then was there any dilemma in Paul's mind regarding this issue? And that brings us to my third and final point this morning. Living to serve Christ is more beneficial to our brethren. You see, the dilemma was there in Paul's mind because he loved his brethren. Verses 24 to 26 say, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So as Paul weighed life and death, even as he declared that to die and be with Christ is far better, he ultimately comes to the conclusion that it would be better for his brethren for him to stay in this life so that he could help them. Thus, he thought about the needs of the brethren above his own desires. And this is great maturity being displayed 
by Paul. This is true Christ-likeness because Christ himself considered his brethren, his sheep, before considering himself. Paul was content to put off his own well-deserved reward for the sake of those he loved. But I want you to notice something else. This text shows us more than the maturity of Paul. This text also shows us the loving care of God himself. Take a look, another look at verses 24 and 25. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Notice that Paul says he knows he will remain and continue in life with the Philippians. Well, how did he know? How could he possibly have known that? After all, Paul was not the one in control of his own fate. Rather, it was Nero, the emperor, who had the power to let him live or execute him. So how did Paul know that he would get to live? Look at the text. He was convinced that remaining in the flesh was more necessary for the sake of the Philippians. He knew that it would be better for him to live, and so he knew that God would make it so. Remember years earlier when Paul was converted on the road to Damascus? We heard a piece of that account this morning in the Bible reading. Well, Jesus said regarding Paul that he would show him how much he must suffer for his sake. So Paul always knew that his life would be marked by service to Christ. If there was work left to be done, then he knew that God would keep him on the earth until it was done. Paul was not going to be given any free rights or, or an easy right. Jesus said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul, a man with the mind of Christ, knowing that there was still necessary work to be done in the lives of the Philippians, knew that God would not let him die and rest until that work was done. So while we see Paul showing great maturity in terms of his willingness to continue serving God and continue serving his brethren, what we should also see in this text is God's willingness to continue supplying the saints. And that's what's really going on here. God knew it was necessary for Paul to continue living for the time being for the good of his people. You see, as much as Paul cares about his brethren, Jesus Christ cares all the more. Even today, God knows it is necessary for there to be workers in the field of the world. After all, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So God provides for the harvest. So we can see that Paul was still needed to help build up the church. Paul says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. He, his continued teaching, exhortation, and even rebuke was necessary for the believers of his day to be sanctified and matured. There were heresies that needed to be resisted and encouragement that needed to be given to the believers of his day. Remember, the, the believers back then did not have the New Testament as we know it today. There was not yet a collection of writings from all of the apostles such as we have in our Bibles today. So even as Paul wrote to the Philippians, the foundation was still being laid in terms of doctrine that would come to define Christianity forever. That would continue to protect it from 
from heresy and Satan and his lies. Just think, if Paul had been killed immediately upon his arrest, we would not even have the letter to the Philippians. So for Paul to continue for a while longer was indeed necessary. And God was ensuring that the church would be well equipped. And it was not only for their progress in the faith, but for their joy as well. God cares not only about our progress in the faith, but our joy as well. He cares about how we, how we feel. Verses 25 and 26 say, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The Philippians could rejoice and glorify God for having kept Paul alive so that they could see their friend and teacher again. So that he could continue to shepherd them in their faith. They could rejoice in the chance to once again partner with him in the gospel, which was the focus of the beginning of the letter, him thanking them for their partnership in the gospel, something that they enjoyed doing, just something that they took seriously. They sacrificed greatly so that they could partner with him in the gospel. These were, these were poor people, so the fact that they would do that shows just how important it was for them to partner with him in the gospel. It was their joy to do so. Paul was a minister of Christ and the Philippians' joy would be to see him continue laboring for Christ and to aid in any way that they could. So for all believers, we should find joy in aiding the work of our ministers as they labor for Christ's sake. We should find joy in seeing the work of Christ being borne out in their faithful service and recognizing that as members of the body of Christ, we have an important role to play in how that work is done body must function together. So brothers and sisters, this entire portion of scripture should be a huge encouragement to us. No matter what trials or sufferings we face, to live is Christ. There is joy to be found even amidst the pain, so long as we are laboring for Christ's sake. The life that is defined by and submitted to the use of Jesus cannot be said to have been wasted. So, as you ponder your future, what is it that you see? Is it life? Is it death? Friends, the beauty of our faith is that it doesn't matter. Because if you live, it will mean fruitful labor for you, which is your joy. Serving Christ is the highest pleasure you can have in this life. And if you die, you gain. Death, if you are in Christ, does not mean loss. For, O oh death, where is your sting? The sting has been taken away by Jesus Christ. Think about this. Death to you is now a door. A door through which stands your loving Savior. We know that to die is gain, and so we need not fear death. And so whether we live or die... We can take comfort in the God who supplies our needs and gives us hope. So let's spend our lives contently and joyfully laboring for Christ, every day looking forward to our reward, being with Jesus forever.